Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. It's good to be here. Uh, This is a somewhat demanding talk. You know, if I were going to try to explain cosmology as best as I can, that would be asking a lot from you, the audience. If I were going to try to explain Kabbalah, that would certainly be asking a lot. To do both together in one uh, fell swoop is demanding a lot, but I'll just ask you to be uh, as attentive as you can, and uh, I'll be happy to take questions afterward. I'm not going to answer them, but I'll be happy to take them. (laughs) Uh, Because um, there's so many words and ideas that I'm going to be pouring out here, I'd like us to pause afterward just for a minute or two. Let's just have a minute minute or two of communal silence before we launch into discussion. In the beginning was the Big Bang, 14 billion years ago. The primordial vacuum was devoid of matter but not really empty, rather in a state of minimum energy, pregnant with potential, teeming with virtual particles. Through a quantum fluctuation, a sort of bubble in this vacuum, there emerged a hot, dense seed, smaller than a proton, yet containing all the mass and energy of the universe. In less than a trillionth of a second, This seed cooled and expanded wildly, faster than the speed of light, inflating into the size of a grapefruit. The expansion then slowed down, but it has never stopped. In its first few seconds, the universe was an undifferentiated soup of matter and radiation. It took a few minutes for things to cool down enough for nuclei to form, and at least 300,000 years for atoms to form. For eons, clouds of gas expanded. Huge, glimmering balls of hot gas formed into stars. Deep within these stars, nuclear reactions gave birth to elements such as carbon and iron. When the stars grew old, they exploded, spewing these elements into the universe. Eventually, this matter was recycled into new solar systems. Our solar system is one example of this recycling, a mix of matter produced by cycles of stars, stars forming and exploding. We, along with everything else, are literally made of stardust. The Earth took shape and began cooling down about four and a half billion years ago. By about a billion years later, various microorganisms had developed. Exactly how, no one knows. 
We do know that Earth's early atmosphere was composed of hydrogen, water vapor, carbon dioxide, and simple gases such as ammonia and methane. In such a climate, organic compounds may have synthesized spontaneously. Or perhaps life drifted to Earth in the form of spores from the planet Mars, or from another solar system in our galaxy, or another galaxy in the universe. However life began, all its forms share similar genetic codes and can be traced back to a common ancestor. All living beings are cousins. We humans like to think of ourselves as the pinnacle of creation. And it's true, we are the most complicated things in the universe. Our brain contains 100 billion cells linked by 100 trillion synaptic connections. Yet we are part of the evolutionary process, descended from single-cell organisms who lived three and a half billion years ago. Our species, Homo sapiens, is a primate that developed in Africa, splitting away from the chimpanzee line about seven million years ago. We still share with the chimps 99% of our active genes. If you'll pardon the expression, we are an improved ape. The Big Bang is a theory. To cosmologists, it offers the most convincing explanation of the evolution of the universe, the best approximation to truth that we currently possess. It might be proven wrong. More likely, it will eventually be enfolded within some larger theory. The scientific consensus is that the Big Bang theory is correct but within a specific realm. The evolution of our universe from maybe one billionth of a second after its origin up to the present. Whatever happened before that first fraction of a second lies beyond the limits of the theory. The term Big Bang suggests a definite beginning, a finite time ago, but the theory doesn't extend quite that far. The ultimate origin of the universe is still unfathomed. Today, many cosmologists speculate about multiple universes, multiple beginnings. If that is so, then maybe we should translate the opening words of the Torah not as in the beginning, but in a beginning. God created heaven and earth. In fact, this could represent a more literal rendering of the original Hebrew, bereshit, in a beginning. Science has no consensus on the ultimate origin. Some theories espouse a well-defined beginning. Others, like Stephen Hawking's, do not. But both suggest a radically new reading of Genesis. If God spoke the world into being, the divine language is energy. The alphabet, elementary particles. God's grammar, the laws of nature. Many scientists have sensed a spiritual dimension in the search for these laws. For Einstein, discovering the laws of nature was a way to discover how God thinks. But does the universe have a purpose? Is there meaning to our existence? Why should we live ethically? Here, cosmology can't help us very much. And Charles Darwin intensifies our problem. Are we different from other animals? Can we transcend violence and savagery? 
As the wife of an Anglican bishop remarked upon hearing of Darwin's theory, descended from apes, my dear, let us hope that it is not true. But if it is, let us pray that it will not become generally known. Her comment echoes the fear that knowing the true nature of our ancestors threatens to unravel the social fabric. We have lost our myth. A myth is a story that helps us make our experience comprehensible by offering a construction of reality. It's a narrative that transforms chaos into order. We're not content to see events as unconnected, as inexplicable. We crave to understand an underlying order in the world. A myth tells us why things are the way they are and where they came from. Such an account is not only comfortable, assuring, and socially useful, it's essential. Without a myth, there is no meaning or purpose to life, just vast emptiness. Myths do more than explain. They guide our mind, conditioning how we think, even how we perceive. Myths come to life by serving as models for human behavior. Every Friday evening, as my family begins Shabbat, I sometimes imagine God having created the world in one very packed week, finally taking a break. The Torah says, Shabbat vayinafash, God rested and was refreshed. This mythical image enables me to pause, to slow down, to appreciate creation. By observing Shabbat, I'm imitating the divine. Order reemerges out of the chaos of life. But what do we do when the myths of tradition have been undone? When the God of the Bible seems so unbelievable? Is there really someone up there in control, charting the course of history, reaching down to rescue those in need, tallying up our good and bad deeds for reward and punishment? Many people have shed the security of traditional belief. They're more likely to experience a gaping, aching void than the satisfying fullness of God's presence. If people believe in anything today, perhaps it's science and technology. And what does science provide in exchange for this belief? Progress in every field except for one, the ultimate meaning of life. Some scientists insist that there is no meaning. As one leading physicist has written, the more we know about the universe, the more it is evident that it is pointless and meaningless. The Big Bang is a contemporary creation story. Energy turns into matter, which turns back into energy. There is no precise plan for creation worked out in advance. Rather, by an intricate and unrepeatable combination of chance and necessity, humanity has evolved from and alongside countless other forms of life over billions of years. Ultimately, our evolutionary history is uplifting. It enables us to see that we are part of a wholeness, a oneness. To be religious means, in the words of another physicist, to have an intuitive feeling of the unity of the cosmos. This oneness is grounded in scientific fact. We are made of the same stuff as all of creation. Everything that is, was, or will be started off together 
as one infinitesimal point, the cosmic seed. Life has since branched out, but this should not blind us to its underlying unity. The deepest marvel is the unity in diversity, the vast array of material manifestations of energy. Becoming aware of the multifaceted unity can help us learn how to live in harmony with other human beings and with all beings, with all our fellow transformations of energy and matter. If the Big Bang is our new creation myth, the story that explains how the universe began, then who is God? God is a name we give to the oneness of it all. How can you name oneness? How can you name the unnameable? The Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical tradition, offers a number of possibilities. One is Ein Sof, two Hebrew words that literally mean there is no end. Ein Sof is the infinite, or to borrow a phrase from the Christian mystic, Meister Eckhart, the God beyond God. Sometimes the Kabbalists use a more radical name than Ein Sof. This is the name Ayin, nothingness, spelled Aleph Yud Nun. We encounter this bizarre term among Christian mystics too. One of them, John Scotus Origena, writing in Latin, calls God Nihil. Meister Eckhart, writing in German, calls God Nich. John of the Cross, writing in Spanish, calls God Nada. What does it mean to call God nothingness? This does not mean that God does not exist. Rather, it conveys the idea that God is no thing. God animates all things and cannot be contained by any of them. God is the oneness that is no particular thing, no thingness. This mystical nothingness is neither empty nor barren. It is fertile and overflowing, engendering the myriad forms of life. The mystics teach that the universe emanated from divine nothingness. Similarly, as we have seen, cosmologists speak of the quantum vacuum, teeming with potential, engendering the cosmic seed. This vacuum is anything but empty, a seething froth of virtual particles constantly appearing and disappearing. How did the universe emerge out of this prolific nothingness? According to Kabbalah and the Big Bang Theory, this transition was marked by a single point. Physicists call this point a singularity, an infinitely dense point in space-time. A singularity is both destructive and creative. Anything falling into a singularity merges with it, losing its identity, while energy emerging from a singularity can become anything. The normal laws of physics do not apply to that split second when energy or mass emerges. According to the 13th century Kabbalist Moses de Leon, quote, the beginning of existence is the secret concealed point. This is the beginning of all the hidden things which spread out from there and emanate according to their species. From a single point, you can extend the dimensions of all things." Unquote. As emanation proceeds, 
as God begins to unfold, the point expands into a circle. Similarly, ever since the Big Bang, our universe has been expanding. We know this thanks to the astronomer Edwin Hubble, who measured the speed at which other galaxies are moving away from us. In 1929, Hubble determined that the farther a galaxy is from us, the faster it's moving away. The universe is expanding in all directions. It's not that the universe is expanding within space. Space itself is expanding. The most dramatic consequence of Hubble's discovery is what it tells us about the origin of our universe. Just play the Hubble tape in reverse. If the universe is now expanding, that means it was once much smaller. How small? According to the Big Bang Theory, if we go back far enough in space-time, if we retrace the formation of the galaxies, the whole mass energy of the universe contracts into the size of a singularity, that infinitesimal point from which the cosmos flashed into existence. One Kabbalist, Shimon Lavi, understands expansion as part of the rhythm of creation. Let's look here at the first quote on the page that you have. With the appearance of the light, the universe expanded. With the concealment of the light, the things that exist were created in all their variety. This is the mystery of the act of creation. One who understands will understand. When light flashed forth, time and space began. But the early universe was an undifferentiated soup of energy and matter. How did matter emerge from that stew? The mystic writes that the light was concealed. A scientist would say that energy congealed. Matter is frozen energy. No nucleus or atom could form until some of the energy cooled down enough that it could be bound and bundled into stable particles of matter. Einstein discovered the equivalence of mass and energy. Ultimately, matter is not distinct from energy, but simply energy that has temporarily assumed a particular pattern. Matter is energy, but in a tangible form. Both are different states of a single continuum, different names for two forms of the same thing. Like the physicist, the mystic too is fascinated by the intimate relation of matter and energy, though the mystical description is composed in a different key. Material existence emerges out of iron, that pool of divine energy. Ultimately, the world is not separate from God because this energy is concealed within all forms of being. If it weren't concealed, there could be no individual existence. Everything would dissolve back into oneness or nothingness. Around the middle of the 16th century, in the mountaintop city of Safed, Sfat, in Galilee, the most famous Kabbalist who ever lived, Isaac Luria, pondered creation, and he asked himself, what came before? Luria believed there was only Ein Sof, God as infinity. But if Ein Sof pervaded all space, 
How could there be room for anything that wasn't God? How could a world exist at all? Luria concluded that the first act of creation was not the divine flow, but rather withdrawal. And we come here to the second quote. Before the creation of the universe, Ensof withdrew itself into its essence, from itself, to itself, within itself. Within its essence, it left an empty space in which it could emanate and create. This is known in Hebrew as simtsum, which literally means contraction, but here suggests withdrawal, a withdrawal by which God made room for something other than God. The primordial void carved out by Tsimtsum became the site of creation, no larger than an infinitesimal point in relation to Ein Sof, yet spacious enough to house the cosmos. But the void was not really empty. It retained a trace, a residue of the light of Ein Sof, just as the vacuum preceding the Big Bang was not completely empty, but rather in a state of minimum energy, pregnant with creative potential and virtual particles. According to Kabbalah, as Ein Sof began to unfold, a ray of light was channeled into the void through vessels. Everything went smoothly at first, but some of the vessels, less translucent, could not withstand the power of the light. They shattered. Most of the light then returned to its infinite source, to the mother's womb. But the rest fell as sparks, along with broken shards of the shattered vessels. And these sparks were eventually trapped in the material world. Our task, according to Kabbalah, is to liberate these sparks of light, to restore them to God. By living ethically and spiritually, we raise the sparks and thereby bring about tikkun, the repair or mending of the cosmos. If the vessels had not broken, our world of multiplicity would not exist. You might say that we exist today as we are because we have lost oneness. Modern cosmology has a theory that parallels this breaking of the vessels. It's called the theory of broken symmetry. What makes something symmetrical? Something is symmetrical if it looks the same from different points of view, like a snowflake rotated 60 degrees. I realize it's very hard for you folks to appreciate a snowflake, although I hear there were a few flurries last week. But we all remember what a snowflake is like. But symmetry, of course, is unstable. Picture yourself at an elegant wedding dinner, sitting with other guests around a circular table. Champagne glasses have been placed precisely between each dinner plate and the next. You could call this perfect right-left symmetry. A waiter comes, fills the glasses with champagne, and everybody sits waiting for someone else to lift a glass. You're getting a little thirsty. Realizing that those pink bubbles aren't going to last forever, you decide to take a sip. But which champagne glass should you pick? Not fully versed in the rules of etiquette, you could as easily choose the glass to your left as the one to your right. Either way, as soon as you reach for one or the other, the symmetry is broken. Unless everyone else does exactly what you've done, 
Someone's going to have to reach across the table to get a glass. Let's take a more mundane example. Imagine you're holding a handful of sharpened pencils. I realize this too requires a lot of imagination because (laughs) who sharpens pencils these days? But imagine you're holding a handful of sharpened pencils just snug enough that they stand straight. Now let go. For a moment, the pencils remain balanced. You could say they're rotationally symmetrical. Looking down from above, you see a perfect circle of pencil erasers. But of course, that symmetry is quickly broken. The pencils fall into a tangle, what we used to call looking like pickup sticks. Those pencils, believe it or not, are a metaphor for the whole universe. The jumble of fallen pencils, that's the universe today. The symmetrical bundle is the universe in its original state. One of the challenges of science is to discover the symmetry hidden within the confusion of ordinary life. The universe began in an extremely hot state of extreme simplicity and symmetry. As it expands and cools, this perfect symmetry is broken, giving rise to the world of diversity and structure that we inhabit. To us today, the fundamental forces of nature appear distinct. Gravity, electromagnetism, and two other forces called the strong and weak nuclear forces. It's the balance between these four forces that determines the existence of everything in the visible universe. But originally, all those four forces were linked. And today, there are many scientists who dream of finding a single set of equations describing all four as one. By colliding subatomic particles, physicists have discovered that at extremely high temperatures, the differences between those forces begin to disappear. One final act of imagination. Imagine yourself journeying back in time, closer and closer to the moment of the Big Bang. The further you go, the hotter and denser the universe becomes, and those broken symmetries are restored. You go back millions, billions of years. Finally, you reach the tiniest fraction of time that a physicist can imagine, 10 to the minus 43 second after the Big Bang. That's one ten millionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the beginning. Earlier than this is hard to probe. (laughs) Why? Because the density of matter becomes so great, the structure and maybe the meaning of space and time just break down. At this point, all interactions between the fundamental forces are indistinguishable. Perfect symmetry. How did that symmetry of Bereshit, of the beginning, become so disguised over the course of time? As the universe expands and starts to cool, its radiation and particles lose energy. The various forces become distinct. Meanwhile, matter is losing its oneness. By the time the universe is just one billionth of a second old, there are four forces and two dozen kinds of elementary particles. This fracturing of symmetry creates the particles of matter and energy found today around us and within us. Perfect symmetry may sound alluring, 
but it is sterile. If the primal force had not broken into four forces, the universe would be a very different place if it existed at all. Tiny deviations from complete uniformity now give rise to nuclei, atoms, molecules, then galaxies, stars, planets, and people. We exist today in our present condition with all our flaws and imperfections because of broken symmetry. Just as Kabbalah teaches that our jumbled, blemished reality derives from the breaking of the vessels. Broken symmetry and the breaking of the vessels are distinct theories, each generated by a different approach to the question of the origin of the universe. But their resonance is intriguing. Apparently, the human mind has devised alternative strategies, scientific and spiritual, to search for our origin. The two are distinct, but they're complementary. Science enables us to probe infinitesimal particles of matter, unimaginable depths of outer space, understanding each in light of the other as we grope our way back toward the beginning. Spirituality guides us through inner space, challenging us to retrace our path to oneness and to live in the light of what we discover. As we've seen, the Jewish mystics picture divine sparks in everything that exists. A scientist would say there is energy latent in subatomic particles. The spiritual task is to raise the sparks, to restore the world to God, to become aware that every single thing we do or see or touch or imagine is part of the oneness, a pattern of energy. Raising the sparks is a powerful metaphor. It transforms religion from a list of do's and don'ts or a list of dogmas into spiritual adventure. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. God is not some separate being up there. She is right here, in the leaf of a tree, in a friend's voice, in a stranger's eye. The world is teeming with God. Since God is in everything, we can serve God through everything. In looking for the divine spark, we discover that what is ordinary is really spectacular. The holy deed is doing what needs to be done right now. The world is fractured, and God needs us to mend it. In mending the world socially, economically, politically, we mend God, whose sparks lie scattered everywhere. How will it all end? What's the long-range future of our planet, according to science? Here's the forecast. The sun is about five billion years old, middle-aged and reliable. But five billion years from now, the hydrogen fuel in the sun's core will run out. The core of the sun will sag, 
while the atmosphere of the sun will mushroom, engulfing several of its closest planets, including Earth. Gradually, most of this atmosphere will fall away, leaving a hot, dense ball of inert matter. Life will not necessarily come to an end. By then, human beings will have developed the technology to move to another, safer solar system. Meanwhile, here we are. We still have quite a while until the year five billion. <laughs> Chance will play a role in the way things unfold, as it always has. We should learn to negotiate with chance. We should work on mending our own brokenness, our social fabric, our planet, as best we can. What kind of God can we believe in? The Hebrew word emunah, belief, originally meant trust and faithfulness, both human and divine. Without trusting another person, we cannot love. Without trusting others, we cannot build and sustain community. But how can we trust the cosmos or this God of oneness? We can trust that we are part of something greater, a vast web of existence, constantly expanding and evolving. When we gaze at the nighttime sky, we can ponder that we are made of elements forged within stars, out of particles born in the Big Bang. We can sense that we are looking back home. The further we gaze into space, the further we see back into time. If we see a galaxy 10 million light years away, we're really seeing that galaxy as it existed 10 million years ago, because it's taken that long for its ancient light to arrive at our eyes. Beyond any star we will ever identify lies the horizon of space-time, 14 billion light years away. But neither God nor the Big Bang is that far away. The Big Bang didn't happen somewhere out there, outside of us. Rather, we began inside the Big Bang. We now embody its primordial energy. The Big Bang has never stopped. And what about God? God is not an object or a fixed destination. There's no definite way to reach God. But then again, you don't need to reach something that's everywhere. God is not somewhere else hidden from us. God is right here hidden from us. We're enslaved by our routines, rushing from event to event, from one shore to another, we rarely let ourselves pause to notice the splendor right in front of us. Our sense of wonder has shriveled, victimized by our pace of life. How then can we find God? A clue is provided by one of the many names of Shekhinah, the feminine aspect of God, the divine presence. In Kabbalah, she is called ocean, well, garden, apple orchard, and she's also called zot, a Hebrew word which means simply this. God is right here in this very moment, fresh and unexpected, taking us by surprise. God is this.
Any questions? Is crystal clear or too confusing to even start? Please. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what I meant either, but, uh, you know, you know but very often, yeah, but very often mystics uh, are uncomfortable with chance. You know, most mystical writers and most mystical systems say nothing is chance, right? It's all determined or it's all part of some great plan. And I want to, to I want to, uh, to celebrate chance. I think there's something wonderful about the, the unknown and the unexpected. So there's no way we can figure out exactly what's going to happen, but we have to somehow play with chance or learn how to live with chance. So what I meant by negotiate with chance is to admit that it's a reality, but not to, you know, not to fall into despair because of that, to see a positive aspect of the, of the unexpected, to, to be glad that it's not all worked out ahead of time. It's a new energy. It allows more of a spontaneity and a new energy. Yeah, there's something about chance and spontaneity that, that go together. You can't really be spontaneous if you know exactly how it's all going to turn out. Is chance related to chaos and to the breaking of the symmetries? Yeah, I mean, chaos sounds you know, a little more devastating or dismal, but the chance, chance and chaos and the, the broken symmetry perhaps all, all fit together. Right? I mean, creation happens out of chaos, and even, even from Breshit, right? There's tohu vavohu, and out of that chaos, God is imposing order on chaos, but somehow chaos is never totally overcome. So chaos bubbles up or, you know, or explodes at, at certain points, and we have to, to learn how to live with, with that as well as chance. Please. Yeah. Um, this little infinitesimal seed... Mm. Smaller than a proton. Right. What before decided to expand was located where? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where is the seed located? I mean, I mean it, you know, it had to be, was it there and it expanded or there? Or? Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard for the mind to wrap itself around that, and I, I don't claim that I really understand it totally, but a physicist, I think, would say it's not that the seed exists within something greater, but that was all that existed, or as if all of space is contracted within that, that infinitesimal point, too. And, and the space is expanding. Space is not... Expand, right. Expanding into what? <laughs> What's outside the bubble? Yeah, it's, it, it, the, the thing that's very hard to understand about that concept is the idea of the singularity means that the dimensions that we take for granted, forward, backward, up, down, didn't exist. I, I Time didn't exist. Every, it's every, an isotropic voice. <laughs> but, but by the way, uh, the singularity is not the only theory. Mm-hmm. The string theory and yeah, I mean, I'm not a specialist in this, but there there are other theories. What's called string theory or M M theory is a is a development out of string theory. 
There are people who, many scientists are uncomfortable with singularity because a singular, at, at a singularity, the laws of physics break down entirely. Plus, nobody's ever been able to work the math out. Huh? Nobody's ever been able to get the math. Right. You know, and physicists like theories that, that are testable, and, and string theory is not really, really testable. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so I, I guess the, the derivative of all of it is science, like religion, is faith-based. Is what? Is faith-based. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, my, my approach is that, you know, I think, I think science and religion each have, have part of the, of the puzzle, and we should be humble enough to, to learn from both of them, right? Most people plant themselves in one camp or the other. I'm a scientist, and I don't want to go for any of this superstitious, supernatural stuff, or I'm a believer, and, you know, I don't want to, to, to surrender to the, to the, the world of, of formulas and, and mathematics. But I think, you know, where, where there are correspondences, where there are harmonies between the two, that's something to celebrate. But it's really, you know, what can science and, and religion learn from each other? For example, science can learn from religion to appreciate, to cultivate a sense of wonder, a sense of amazement. And the greatest scientists had that. Some of the greatest scientists were really guided by that. Newton said that he felt like a little child playing on the seashore, and he'd be throwing little pebbles into the water while beyond him lay the vastness of the ocean. So his, his theories were like playthings, and he realized he was barely touching the totality of it. So science can learn from religion to, to cultivate that sense of wonder. What can religion learn from science? One thing is that... You make progress by, by proving yourself wrong. Right? Science really makes progress by disproving its theories. And a true scientist is not bothered when his pet theory is overturned. Now, of course, ego enters into it, and everyone wants to, to be right. But a scientist realizes that if something's proven wrong, that's progress. That theory is proven wrong, there has to be a new hypothesis. So, so being willing to, to give up some of our dogmas, okay, our view of God may be inadequate. And Kabbalah is really challenging the current orthodoxy. When Kabbalah talks about God as infinity or God as no thingness, it's really being dissatisfied with the current view of God. God is someone who's sitting up there running the show that doesn't seem to really be adequate. And for us today, after the Holocaust, after going through what happened in the past century, uh, that kind of God just doesn't work for people, for many, many people any longer. So Kabbalah, I think, offers possibilities for reconceptualizing God, and we have to be willing to, to let go of some of the dogmatic formulations. It's not that we throw out the tradition. We can appreciate the tradition as a, as a poetic attempt to, to picture God, but it's not the ultimate word. It's not the, the final accurate theology. Yeah. Personally, in your beliefs, 
either religiously, humanitarianly, scientifically, mm -hmm. in, in whatever way. Mm -hmm. You wrote God in the Big Bang a gazillion years ago. Then you worked for another gazillion years on the Zohar. Mm -hmm. Now here we are. How are you changed or different or not? Uh, next question. Okay. <laughs> yeah. no, it's hard. It, it's hard to, to remember what I was like, or, or I really have to, you have to ask my wife rather than me. She's not here. She's in Berkeley. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's had a profound impact on me. Uh, delving into Zohar and, and trying to make sense of this of this amazing book. Um, you know, a lot a lot of the the symbolism of Zohar has has, has entered more deeply into me. I guess one thing. One thing that's helped me appreciate is just the, the balance of opposites. The Zohar talks about opposite qualities of God, right? Love and rigor, love and fear. And the most important thing in Kabbalah is balancing the opposites, trying to reach a place of, of harmony. So I, I'm more aware of opposites within life and, and trying, to, trying not to reject one or the other, but to find some, some medium, some middle way. The other thing it's helped me realize is just not to be content with the surface meaning of things, right? The Zohar is penetrating the text of the Torah, trying to delve more deeply in the Torah, and not being satisfied with the pshat, with a simple meaning. So it, it's definitely given me a deeper appreciation of the, of the depth of Torah. The Zohar is so radical in how it reads the Torah. You know, to give you one example, the opening words of the Torah, I'm sure we all know them in English, many of us know them in Hebrew, Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. And then, of course, it goes on, the heaven and the earth. But just that first clause, in the beginning, God created. So what's the Hebrew? Bereshit is in the beginning. Bara created. Elohim, God. So it's in the beginning, created God. Now, in Hebrew, you can say that, and, of course, it means in the beginning, God created. It's kind of like, thus spoke the king. It means, thus the king spoke. So in the beginning created God means, in the beginning God created. But the Zohar says, no, 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 let's take it exactly in the order it's, it says. In the beginning, it created God. That's how the Zohar reads the opening words of the Torah. In the beginning, it created God. Now, what's it? God is the ultimate. What could be greater than God? It's the God beyond God. It's Ein Sof. So for the Zohar, the open words of the Torah now mean, in the beginning, in Sof created what we think of as God. It's really a critique of, of normal theology. It's saying what we think of as God is really very puny compared to the ultimate reality of God. So that radical rereading of the Torah, I was aware of it to some extent when, when I wrote the first edition of this, and delving into Zohar for a couple decades has made me realize the Zohar is being very playful. It's very profound and deep, but it's also very playful, like the rabbis of the Midrash are, in you know, reimagining re what the Torah could mean. So it's made me appreciate the boldness of the Zohar, and it's made me, it strengthened me in, in being bold in rethinking you know, what, what God could mean for, for my life. The Zohar loves to challenge the simple meaning of the text. The other great example is when, when God expels Adam from the garden. God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. The Zohar asks a very interesting question. It says, who threw whom out of the garden? Did God throw Adam out or not? Now, what's the alternative? Adam 
threw God out. The Zohar doesn't say that. The Zohar just says, or not. It makes the reader come up with that radical, almost heretical alternative. The Zohar actually says, Adam threw the Shekhinah out of the garden. Adam threw God out of the garden. Maybe Adam and Eve lost their sense of oneness. They had an innocent oneness, and then they became aware of themselves as separate beings, as ego. And by being aware of themselves as separate, they found themselves all of a sudden out of paradise. Now, that's not necessarily a sin or the fall. That's just what happens. Every baby feels that, it's, that the universe is one. Every baby feels it's one with the cosmos. You could say every baby is a mystic. And then somehow the baby comes to realize, ah, there's mother and me. There's actually a separation. And then it's, you know, it's downhill from there. <laughs> so, so the Zohar is saying try to recover, try to recover in some way that, that oneness. That's what spirituality is, I think. You had a question, then over here too. Starting, starting with the singularity and recognizing the 14, almost 15 billion year old origin and working through to where we are today, um, in that context, uh, our rituals, anybody's rituals, practices seem rather narrow, confining, and arbitrary when you start from that beginning. Mm-hmm. Comment on that, please. What, what about ritual? What about ritual practice in, in this cosmic context? Yeah. Does, does it really work? Is it really doable? I mean, you know, what, what action could possibly be appropriate for this, for this idea of God as, as oneness or God as, as energy? You know, we could go back to Maimonides. Maimonides indicates or intimates that the greatest form of, of prayer is meditation. So maybe silent meditation is the appropriate form of prayer. Or you could say to bring silence back into prayer. Right? And, and, and many rabbis and congregations are trying to bring silence back into prayer. You don't need, you don't need a lot of silence. Like we had now, what was it, maybe one minute of silence. A minute can seem infinite. But a, a little bit of silence, a little is a lot. I think that's so true with, with so many things in, in spirituality. So, you know, it's not to throw out the words, it's to let the words lead you to a pregnant moment of silence. So to allow some spaciousness, that would, that would I think, be, bring us more into accord with, with uh, and so forth. Yeah. Rabbi, if we go back to the singularity, and we come to the creation of a being that is aware of itself, mm. I don't know if we can know if we can know that for certain. I think it's something to, to be aware of. It's something to celebrate. This, this existential fact that we are aware. Remember what, what Carl Sagan said was that we are the cosmos becoming aware of itself. The cosmos becomes aware of itself through us. So the fact that we have awareness is the fundamental religious, psychological, scientific insight or discovery. I, in terms of purpose, I, 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 I don't like when people impose purpose. I'm not saying there's not a purpose, but most formulations of purpose don't seem, they seem too heavy-handed to me. Abraham Abu Lafi has a beautiful uh, teaching about the, the purpose. He says, uh, purpose of the marriage of a woman and a man is union. 
The purpose of union is fertilization. The purpose of fertilization is giving birth. The purpose of birth is learning. The purpose of learning is to grasp the divine. The purpose of grasping the divine is to maintain the endurance of the one who comprehends with the joy of comprehending. So the first few lines sound very simple, and then it, huh? And at the end you're saying, huh? But it's kind of, I think it's the purpose is the, is the, the discovery of learning. I mean, why are we here tonight? Why aren't we out you know, watching a, a hockey game or a basketball game? There's some hunger that people have. Why do people come to Valley Beit Midrash week after week? There's somehow that, that there's a thrill. Okay, there's, 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 there's a certain thrill of learning. There's a thrill of discovery. And it's not even so much what you discover, it's the fact that you can discover. The fact that we can discover makes us want to learn more and more and more. And then many people lose that, right? Many children lose that by second grade or third grade or high school or people get turned off by learning. But to, to keep alive that spark, that thrill of discovery, maybe that's, that's the purpose. To keep discovering, to keep exploring. That's what we're here for. And God rejoices when each little fragment of God discovers that it's part of this greater whole. That's the same spark you were referring to. The spark. You, you could say, you know, God splinters itself into a billion sparks, and when, he, when one of those sparks discovers that it's part of the whole, that's a moment of, of reunion, of cosmic celebration or, or reunion. Craig. About the universal tikkun. Being able to repair the vessels. Mm-hmm. So tikkun is, is somehow bringing, is discovering the spark, which I think means discovering the divine potential within another human being or within a, a life situation, within a moment during life. Say you find yourself, it's, it's Tuesday afternoon, you're in the supermarket, you make a purchase, you go to the cash register for, for five seconds, for 10 seconds, you actually have contact with another human being who you don't know, and there can be a moment of eye contact in which you just kind of say, huh, both of us exist. <laughs> Bo- both of us are here and both of us are alive, without saying it. Just some other, some contact, I'm a human being, you are a human being, we are both here. That, that's a moment of, of what Buber calls a dialogue or an I-thou relationship, discovering the, the divine image in another person. Or do you just rush by and, and not be aware of each other at all? That often happens. So tikkun is, I think, becoming aware of the divine potential in another person or in a, in a life opportunity. And that, uh, that's, that's something to, to celebrate. Rav Shmuley. This, this idea that we all love, but it's hard to maintain, of living with awe or wonder, as you talked about, Uh-huh. Um, what are some spiritual practices or exercises that the Kabbalist tradition has to offer to sustain that type of, of consciousness? How do you sustain that consciousness of, of, of discovering the awareness? I guess, you know, certainly one, one is, is meditation. Meditation can be as simple as, as breathing, right? The Hebrew word for soul is the same as the Hebrew word for breath. That's true in Hebrew and in English. Neshama means soul and breath. Spirit means, soul means spirit and breath. So to, to pause and be aware that we can breathe, I think is the simplest 
meditative technique that can, that can turn, you know, a moment where you're just kind of stuck in traffic or waiting for an appointment to focus on your breath for 30 seconds or for one minute, I think is, is a great technique. Uh, on the other hand, mitzvot. Mitzvot are really the, the mystical technique that the Kabbalists build on. And obviously, they don't invent it, but they, they take mitzvot as opportunities for, for bringing about tikkun. You know, you think, what are the mitzvot? Usually when we think of mitzvot, you think of keeping Shabbat, keeping kosher. One of the mitzvot is what? That you should cleave to God. One of the mitzvot is that you should have union with God. That's not a mystical innovation of the Kabbalists. It's in the Torah. It's in the book of Deuteronomy, cleave to God. It actually says it four or five times in the book of Deuteronomy. Cleave to God. So to be religious is to commit yourself to, to being one with God. How do you become one with God? By, by helping your neighbor or by being aware of the, of the oneness. So some of the mitzvot themselves can become mystical techniques. And I think we can you know, add to that uh, meditation. Yeah. You mentioned his name a few minutes ago. I was going to ask you if you are a big fan of Carl Sagan. Because to me, it seems like your delivery is very similar to his. Huh. And uh, <laughs> one of his favorite things that he said frequently was, uh, we are all made of star stuff. Uh -huh. It was something he made a big point of yeah. all the time in his books and right. his lectures. And right, stardust. Yeah, I first came across that thing of stardust from him. I've seen many, many physicists talk about it too. But what's amazing is it's something that poetic, you know, that, that mystical is, is scientific fact. You know, the, the fact that, that actually, you know, most of, most of the elements, I mean, hydrogen and helium were there from the beginning. But most of the elements weren't there at the moment of the Big Bang. Most of them are forged within stars. They only happen when stars exploded that those elements exist. So most of what's in our body, some of it is not stardust. The hydrogen and the helium within us is even before there were any stars. But we're, we're made of lots of things, and a, a good amount of it is, is stardust. So Sagan, I think, you know, he was Jewish, and I don't think he was aware of connections with Kabbalah, but he really, it's an example of how science can be spiritual. You know, why did I get into this stuff? I got into this stuff because I'd be lecturing about Kabbalah or Zohar, and people would come up to me afterward and say, you know, this sounds like the Big Bang. And after I heard that a few times, I said, I better look into this. So I started reading good popularizations about the Big Bang, and then I put Zohar away for a long time. All I wanted to do was read one after, after the other, and each one kind of built on, on the preceding one. And to me, it's, it, it's the, the, the wondrous quality of science is really what, what I found, I found so, so exciting. Maybe a couple more questions, and then I'll continue uh, informally with people. Uh, let me uh, first turn to someone who hasn't had a chance yet. Yeah. So if you were going to try, or perhaps you have already done this, try to bring together communities of people, scientists and, and religious, what's one thing that you would do to make that happen, to, to bridge that, you know, for people who might feel that there's this divide and they can't mm. quite get over the idea that uh I guess I mean what's been most fulfilling to me about about writing this book God and the Big Bang is that a number of scientists have said it's enabled them to cultivate spirituality they had kind of ruled God out because all they had was the traditional God concept to see that there were actually mystics you know four or five hundred years ago 
for speaking of God as energy, God as the energy animating the universe, that enabled them to, you know, to relate to God in, in a different way. And for religious people, you know, who often feel threatened by science, to see that there's a scientific approach that, that uh, you know, that, that, that really is in tune with, with the spiritual, that's, that, that's uh, fulfilling. It's only the beginning of an answer, but that's uh, what I'd say for now. Yeah. Uh huh. The embryo looks very much like. Not that, not that since the, um, when the ray of light goes into the. Um, what's it called? When the ray of light enters into the. Uh, with, with Luria, the, the ray of light entering the vessels. Uh huh. It's really a birth, a birth process. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. Right, right. The feminine is really important here, too, because for Kabbalah, there's a divine mother. The divine mother gives birth to, the, to all the qualities of God and to the, to the cosmos. So, you know, the, the theme of Shekhinah, the feminine, is really one of the great contributions of Kabbalah to balance, to balance the patriarchal emphasis of so much Western religion. Yes. Describe a very transcendent God, this oneness. Uh huh. Is it concerned with me? Is it concerned with, with me? To the extent, I mean, it, look, if oneness is really oneness, it's not something out there, right? I'm, I'm really part of it. So it's not, it's not normally, it's not kind of, you know, God out there caring for me. You know, that, 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 that's, that's, that, that's the beautiful warmth that you have in traditional religion. God is up there caring for me. So much of, of history seems to negate that or contradict that, but I, I don't see the oneness as, as cold you know, or abstract. I see that somehow I'm part of this, of this oneness. If oneness is really oneness, then it's not out there, it's that I'm, I'm in it, I'm part of it. I'm a fraction of, of infinity. With that comfort of grieving mother, pro- probably not, probably not. I mean, I think I think traditional traditional religion is needed in in those moments of of grief or loss. So I I, I don't want to I don't want to dismiss that or or you know. How to draw how to connect between that and the traditional religion? I mean, Kabbalah is trying to combine both of them. Kabbalah would say, "In Sof is the oneness, the Sefirot." These qualities of God refer to God being involved in history, God being involved in your life. So Kabbalah kind of wants to have its cake and eat it too, to have the ultimate and have, have the personal. The personal is there with, with the traditional God. Hi, David, good to see you. Um, just in response to what was just brought up, I'm grieving and I was comforted by what you've said tonight. So. Hmm. How, how, is it, how is it comforting? lifts me out of my feeling sorry for myself 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but now there's a bigger reminding me mm-hmm. a bigger part of things that has symmetries and has uh-huh. flows and then grows and expands. And right. I'm part, I'm part of something greater. <clears throat> Good. Good. Last question for this now. This has been exciting. This is wonderful. Fulfilling. Thank you. Do you think you. of Charles, Charles Darwin, who's the only agnostic ever to be buried in Westminster Abbey, hmm. who's living today, hmm. that he would still remain an agnostic? Hmm. <laughs> I mean... Yes, some some of Darwin's writings, you know, he talks about he talks about God as, as you know, somehow working working through the process of, of evolution. That there is a he speaks, you know, he he doesn't accept the, the traditional God notion, just as Einstein rejected the traditional God notion. But Einstein really saw he accepted the God of Spinoza. Right? For Einstein and Spinoza, God is identified with nature. So it's another way of being religious. I've seen quotes uh, of, of Darwin in which he, he still sees uh, uh, something, something, I don't know, know if spiritual is the right word, but something uplifting, something wondrous, something wondrous about the unfolding of life. And Abraham Isaac Cook, Rav Cook, a great creative Kabbalist of the 20th century, he speaks of evolution as God's energy gradually unfolding in this, in this new way. So it's not the way Genesis describes it. It's the way Darwin describes it. But he sees that as, as a divine life taking on all the forms it possibly could. It's a passage I can show you afterwards. It's called Evolution and Kabbalah, which uh, that, that's his appreciation. I said last question, but now the very last question. <laughs> Uh, I would say that the essential Kabbalah. <laughs> yeah. They've ordered they've ordered the essential Kabbalah here tonight. Uh, I have a book called God and the Big Bang. This is kind of the whole book scrunched into forty minutes. So, as I said, it's asking a lot to, to listen to it. But the book um, outlines it. I, I revised it after working on Zohar for twenty years. I. I did a revised version of God and the Big Bang. And the one new element that's there, let me close with that, the the new element that I have in that is a mystical understanding of of gravity. Now, what could be less mystical than gravity? Gravity is just so boring. Gravity is like, you know, oh, it it dropped and fell again, a breaking of the vessels maybe, things drop. But gravity is absolutely amazing. I don't want to drop this iPhone. Let me just drop this. You know, so where is it falling? With what I just dropped. It's, it's falling to the table. But really it's falling to the floor. Really it's falling to the earth. Really it's falling to the center of the earth, right? But it's not really falling to the center of the earth. It's really the whole earth is also falling toward the sun. We don't go crashing into the sun because we're moving fast enough to keep going around the sun. But when you drop something, it's really falling toward the sun. But it's not really falling toward the sun because the whole sun, the whole solar system is also really falling where? toward the center of the Milky Way, the center of the galaxy. It doesn't get there because it's also moving enough that it circles the center. How long does it take for the sun, the whole solar system, to go around the center of the galaxy? It takes 250 million years. That, that, that's, 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 that's one galactic day. 
So everything's falling to the center of the Milky Way, but it's not all falling to the center of the Milky Way because the whole Milky Way is also falling. So where is everything falling? Everything is really falling back toward the cosmic seed, back toward the moment of the Big Bang. It doesn't get there because what's counteracting that? The expansion of the universe. The universe is expanding, and until about 20 years ago, cosmologists were divided about whether gravity would win so that eventually things would come back to the big crunch or whether the expansion would win so that gravity would never have enough power to overcome that. Now it's pretty clear, at least for the moment, not only is the universe expanding, but it's accelerating. That's what's called dark energy. And dark energy is so strong that, it, that gravity won't ever win the battle. The gravity is trying to bring us all back to oneness. It's really mis gravity is really mystical. Gravity is the force trying to bring us all back to the cosmic seed, but the universal expansion is, is trying to have us expand and, and continue outward and there's a tug of war between them, and cosmologists could easily overturn it again tomorrow or in a decade. We don't know, but gravity is really, is really mystical. So enough for one night. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>